Welcome to the Impact Education Payer Talk CE program, Innovations in the Retinal Disease Treatment Paradigm. I'm your host, Steve Colusi, and I'm the manager of the Clinical Pharmacy Strategies team at Highmark. This Payer Talk CE program is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources and Impact Education LLC and is designated for 0.5 contact hours of continuing education credit. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and we'd like to thank them for their support. At the conclusion of today's program, you'll be able to complete an evaluation which must be submitted to receive credit. Click Complete Evaluation in the navigation within the activity. Once you complete your evaluation, you must click Claim Credit to download your certificate or, for pharmacists, submit your credit to the CPE monitor. I'm joined today by Dr. Farina Ali, a retina specialist specializing in vitreoretinal diseases. Those are the ones that impact the retina and vitreous. Welcome, Dr. Ali. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So, Dr. Ali, I was really looking forward to speaking with you today because one of the first and most important steps in the formulary review process is the research and assessment of available literature to support the creation of an objective formulary monograph before the PNT committee meeting. And fortunately, we have clinical practice guidelines for many retinal diseases, such as the American Academy of Ophthalmology Preferred Practice Pattern Consensus Documents, which serve as an important reference to payers in the development of evidence-based coverage criteria for retinal diseases. But I've always found the underlying pathophysiology of retinal diseases in particular to be interesting because in many cases, it's pretty intuitive and really helps us to understand how our current treatments work from a mechanistic perspective and what the targets of future treatments may be. So Dr. Ali, can you tell me a bit about some of the innovative treatment options currently in your toolkit for patients with retinal diseases? Yes, absolutely. So the primary diseases that we treat in the field of retinal vascular disease are macular degeneration, diabetic eye disease, and specifically diabetic macular edema, retinal vein occlusion, and some other forms of macular edema. And until only relatively recently, we had no effective treatment for macular degeneration, some treatments for the others, but with significant limitations. So broadly speaking, the pathology that has needed targeting is neovascularization for macular degeneration and vascular leakage for the other disease processes. One influential protein implicated in all of these disease processes is vascular endothelial growth factor and an abnormal or overexpression of what we say VEGF in the retina has been shown to cause pathological angiogenesis, which can ultimately result in vision impairment, thereby making it a highly significant therapeutic target. So designed to inhibit this protein, anti-VEGF agents have had a dramatic shift in the treatment of these diseases. So in current day, patients who historically completely lost their vision from macular degeneration and were left with marked visual and functional impairment as related to AMD are able to maintain very good vision, sometimes as good as 2025 and 2030 if caught early and treated with these agents aggressively. And, you know, as you mentioned, it is great that we have clinical practice guidelines for many retinal diseases. Uh, such as the AAO or American Academy of Ophthalmology Preferred Practice Patterns, as you mentioned, those are consensus documents. These are great resources for evidence-based prescribing as they are developed by a panel of ophthalmologists and based on the best available scientific data. 
That being said, these treatments are offered to patients as frequently as every four weeks. And so there's a fair amount of provider discretion that is utilized that often can't be strictly aligned with consensus documents, although they are still helpful for general guidelines. That's excellent insight, and I really appreciate the the perspective of, you know, that this is a real-world disease that impacts patients in a different way than guidelines can effectively capture. So we're seeing in the managed care space broader uses of other sources of information for P&T committee meetings, such as value frameworks and that real-world evidence that you talked about and reports from patient advocacy groups that can help provide a clinical, economic, and, and I think very importantly, humanistic perspective for each of those formulary decisions. And I, I do think that taking patient perspective into account for all conditions is important, but I've really come to appreciate how a person's independence and quality of life can be negatively impacted when their vision is impaired. So, you know, to your point, 20 plus years ago, patients diagnosed with these retinal diseases were told that their fate was severe visual impairment, even blindness. But fortunately, you know, with those medications that you're mentioning, the VEGF inhibitors, that's not always the case today. So I think we have an opportunity to engage and incorporate the patient perspective more in the formulary process, especially when it comes to preventing blindness. I also understand that visual impairment leads to challenges with adherence, especially for medications that require patients to come into the office for their injection. So Dr. Ali, from your experience, how does the real world evidence and your real world experience compare with what's seen in the clinical trials? Do you lose patients to follow up? Do patients have a hard time coming in for visits? And do patients in the real world experience the same outcomes that we've come to expect based on the clinical trials? That is a great question. And it's something that we are learning more and more about. So what has increasingly come to the fore through investigations with large-scale databases like the American Academy of Ophthalmology's IRIS Registry and the Vestrum database, amongst other claims databases, we've been able to look at real-world treatment patterns at a much larger scale than ever before with some granularity. And what's unmistakable across disease processes is that patients are not receiving treatments that mirror what is seen in clinical trials. Under-treatment is obvious and apparent, and the reality of it is that clinical trials are well-designed and well-resourced for patients to be able to adhere to a strict schedule. They are provided with transportation, oftentimes compensation, as well as to be part of a trial. And outside of that, in the normal day-to-day -day lives for our patients, coming in every four weeks, which, you know, was initially the recommended on-label for our first anti-VEGF agents for their visits, is definitely a real challenge. And so, as such, we do not see as good outcomes in the real world as are seen in clinical trials. And overall, the totality of the data tells us that visual improvements and sustained vision gains easily correlate to the frequency and number of treatments that patients receive. So, under treatment can lead to bad outcomes. And to your point regarding, you know, the formulary process by which the drugs are added, you know, a lot of times the decisions are based off of the label and the labels are based off of clinical trials. But we know that clinical trials don't mirror the real world. So it puts us sometimes in a tricky position in trying to understand how best to make sure we don't lose patients through other life circumstances that can arise in the real world setting. Fantastic, yeah, thank you so much for that. 
And one of the other considerations with the data that I think is important too is this idea of treat and extend is, you know, has grown in popularity to kind of help with some of those real world considerations. But when you look at treat and extend versus just basic non-adherence, that's also potentially a problem when we're interpreting that data. And so to your point, I think it's important that we recognize that it's not so much about just how frequently these patients receive these, but the actual outcomes necessarily aren't as good as what we saw in the clinical trials uh, as well. So that's, that's something to, to consider. So going back to our discussion on the treatment of these disorders, when considering the underlying science behind retinal diseases, what innovations do you see as most influential? That's a great question. And so, you know, as we've talked about, we have been incredibly fortunate with the revolutionary paradigm shift we've seen in disease treatments with the advent of anti-VEGF therapy. That said, as we've also talked about, we've been limited by the frequency of treatment required in order to achieve, the, achieve those really good outcomes that you're talking about. And so that, along with an aging population and multiple patient comorbidities, treatment burdens for patients and providers have been significant. So innovations that have been targeted towards increasing the durability of the drug have received a great deal of interest. We also know that while anti-VEGF has been a remarkable advancement, we remain focused on achieving the best outcomes, and we are still also in need of more potentially efficacious agents for those difficult to treat patients. And this may include new drug delivery platforms, longer acting molecules, molecules with new mechanisms of action, as well as gene therapy. We also are continuing to look for non-invasive treatments for retinal diseases to reduce the treatment burden. Great, thank you so much. And I would say that innovation in the retina space is happening at a very rapid pace, and it's important to stay up to date on those available treatment options for our patients, as well as those treatments that are coming down the pipeline in the future. Are there specific retinal diseases that you see care advancing with innovative treatments more than others? Yes, that's a great question. I think the, the diseases that we've talked about so far remain at the forefront for how we can treat them better. Uh, in other words, achieve the best outcomes with the least number of treatments, ideally. And so as we know, macular degeneration is a major public health concern, and it's a leading cause of blindness in individuals age 60 and older. And the neovascular form of it is an advanced form of disease that can lead to severe and possibly irreversible vision loss. So there have been several agents that have been approved or are in development to increase durability and decrease treatment burden while maintaining good safety profiles. Similarly, for diabetic macular edema, it is also a significant cause of vision loss. It's well treated with anti-VEGF agents, as are retinal vein occlusions. With hypertension, which is, as we know, a highly prevalent medical condition of primary etiology for retinal vein occlusions. So the prevalence and incidence of disease is high. In terms of innovative treatments, um, verisimab is the first treatment that we've had that has had a newer mechanism of action in terms of both an anti-VEGF agent as well as an AND2 agent. So it's a bispecific antibody. The duality of the agent plays an important role in vascular stability and permeability. And the angin tie 2 pathway has received significant investigation due to its role in inflammation, vascular permeability, and neovascularization. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned it because I do feel as though the innovation in this space is at such a rapid clip, it's almost hard to keep up. And we've had the FDA approval of high-dose aflibercept, which is 
eight milligrams instead of the as prior available two milligram form of aflibercept, which has been such a mainstay in our clinical practice and has been so efficacious in treating all of these diseases. And now we have the eight milligram formulation. And in the phase three trials, it had been shown to extend a large proportion of patients to 12 week and 16 week treatment intervals. Other investigational treatments are selective tyrosine kinase inhibitors. They are well known in the oncology field and are also being investigated for the treatment of VEGF driven diseases. These inhibitors work intracellularly to stop downstream effects of both VEGF and platelet derived growth factor. Gene therapy, of course, is one of the exciting future directions for sustained release of anti-VEGF with several trials um, actively underway with reporting positive findings as well uh, with a variety of delivery routes, including intravitreal, supracroidal, as well as subretinal. Now, switching gears a little bit to diabetic retinopathy, which historically is not uh, part of the exudative vascular leakage or neurovascularization etiology, but of course is a very significant disease that, you know, faces our patients with a growing incidence of diabetes in the country. And so in diabetic retinopathy, we are also looking at emerging agents and delivery systems that offer alternatives to the intravitreal anti-VEGF treatments. And, you know, in clinical practice, most U.S. retina specialists choose to monitor their patients with severe non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy without macular edema. So again, putting aside the exudative vascular leakage process, the role of anti-VEGF has uh, been sort of debated within the retina community and the calculus of risk benefits of anti-VEGF, which is an injection in the eye, um, in this setting for providers has been biased towards observing as opposed to treating. And so this is definitely reasonable. We do know that there are non-zero risks associated with intravitreal injections, but we also know that severe disease is exactly that, severe, and it's a marker for underlying poor control of diabetes and the likelihood of disease progression, worsening, loss of vision is high. So we have an unmet need for early non-invasive treatment options that can prevent the progression of diabetic retinopathy. And there are several novel non-injectable pharmaceutical agents in the pipeline and effective treatment via oral or topical administration could lead to increased compliance and improved ultimate visual outcomes for patients with potential for sight-threatening complications of diabetes. It is too early to know which of these treatments will become approved, and based on their pivotal clinical trials, we will be excited to see those results. Thank you for all that detail and, and fantastic summary of everything that is going on in the space. The only other thing I would add um, to that is just the complete response letter was um, issued for the ophthalmology-specific formulation of bevacizumab on August 30th due to several chemistry manufacturing and control issues, open observations from pre-approval manufacturing inspections, and also a lack of substantial evidence. So, um, you know, th this space is just moving so quickly, and it's it's really going to fall onto payers to keep up with this space. I, I'm personally very excited to see what comes down the pipeline in the future, especially related to the oral or topical administration products, as you mentioned, because, you know, there's a fear that comes along with intravitreal injections. And I, I understand that in speaking with patients and so forth, that this is something that stops them from remaining adherent. And I think it's important to recognize that while 
as, as you mentioned, there are some risks. Overall, they're well tolerated and, and um, patients do very well on them, but there's that sort of mental stigma that patients have to overcome in order to get that first injection and realize it's a very tiny needle, it's, it's not so bad. So Dr. Ali, I'm, I'm curious on your reaction to the news that the ophthalmic version of Bevacizumab received that CRL. Was this a product that you were waiting for? Was this um, something that didn't really move the needle for you? That is a great question, and and I'm glad that you mentioned the recent report about the complete response letter from the FDA. Definitely, the retina community has been interested in a prepackaged formulation of an intravitreal dose of bevacizumab as compared to the reliance on compounding pharmacies to dispense the bevacizumab in an off-label fashion, right? So there's definitely a desire to be using safe, approved, on-label drug for our patients. That being said, bevacizumab, as we use it now, has afforded a ton of option for our patients with limited means and has also provided us you know, a way to think about more of the societal cost of medication and the relative cost of using an off-label drug like bevacizumab is much less compared to the branded agent. So we definitely have had some flexibility with what has been available to us through compounding pharmacies. But, you know, I think that for a long time, we've wanted a much easier way to get a hold of the product. And, and we were excited about the potential option through Outlook Therapeutics. There were going to be pluses and minuses for sure as a result of its approval. And so now we are again in a holding pattern where it looks like that may not be coming available to us very soon. And my understanding of the letter is that the, the company would need to complete another trial. So that really changes the timeline definitely. But in the absence of that, within the past year and plus, we've had FDA approvals of biosimilars for ranibizumab. And as we've talked about in the past, ranibizumab over the course of time has had decreasing utilization as compared to the increasing utilization of aflibercept for the treatment of retinovascular disease. But at the same time, we have the biosimilar agents, which I think as retina specialists, we're less familiar with the approval process and sort of the description of a biosimilar agent to our patients. Thank you so much, Dr. Ali, for all of your insights today. I really appreciate it. And now I would like to open up the discussion to our audience for some questions. And so our first question that came in here is, how important is drying in treating patients with retinal diseases? Yes, so that is a really good and very relevant clinical question. I will say that, you know, we've had the anti-VEGF injections now for, for many years, and I think we have gotten very accustomed as retina specialists to evaluating our OCTs, looking for fluid, and wanting the retina to appear dry on the OCT scan, which we've seen to correlate with good vision for the most part. Um, and so I think most retina specialists that you might ask will say that they treat to dry. Now, in recent years, there have been some discussions around tolerance and allowance for fluid, particularly for subretinal fluid. Um, and I think there has become more of a conversation around, you know, 
if you're able to tolerate some fluid, perhaps you might not need to give as many injections or, you know, an allowance for fluid toleration has allowed us to study new drugs and bring them to approval and to market based on looser uh, criteria around how dry the OCT needs to be within the clinical trial setting. So we're, we're developing a mountain of evidence in a controlled setting to say that perhaps some allowance of fluid is not detrimental in terms of vision outcomes. But I think there is a historical precedent that most retina specialists are treating to, to achieve as dry of an OCT as possible. Fantastic. Thank you for that insight. And so our, our next question here uh, is related to adherence. We did talk a lot about adherence throughout this program and you know the, the importance of the medications in improving adherence and so forth. But uh, Dr. Ali, in your perspective, how significant is a patient's lack of adherence with intravitreal injections? Yeah, so it is a big part of what we think about in terms of what we want from newer drugs, in a sense. So the treatment burden is high. The risk of loss to follow-up is high. It's a lot for anyone to get treatments every month, that's for sure. Luckily, our newer agents are giving us more time than that. But still, it amounts to a lot of time for patients to both schedule, show up, hours involved sometimes. And then also many patients with poor vision don't feel comfortable um, escorting themselves to the to the office. And so they require a caregiver for that. So there are multiple points at which the system can break down and a patient will not show up or they have a medical comorbidity and they might be ill and then we lose them for some period of time. So potential lack of adherence is significant. There have been many studies uh, to show that loss to follow-up rates are actually can be quite high and can affect the ultimate visual outcomes for patients. So we are always keeping it in the back of our mind as to how we might be able to make things a little easier for patients and and keeping them within our practice and and with some regularity. That's great. And I'm uh, just filtering through the questions that are coming in here. Thank you everyone for submitting these. Um, after a patient is being treated with injections for over one year consistently, at what point in treatment do you consider holding injections until further progression occurs? That's an interesting question. So usually what we're doing is we're treating patients on a frequent interval, and usually I, I guess I could say monthly for the for the purposes of this, uh, until we see that disease activity is controlled. And then most retina specialists at this point are employing what's a, called a treat and extend approach. So in other words, just to kind of give it more context, you meet a patient with a new diagnosis of wet macular degeneration, you start them on monthly treatments, say after their second or third treatment, the OCT is completely dry. Then at that point, the retina specialist would treat the patient and say, okay, we will extend you to an interval of six weeks. So extend by one to two weeks. And then we see you again in six weeks. If you're still dry, that tells us we have good disease control. And then we treat you again. And then perhaps we go to eight weeks. And so it's not usually the case that we're doing a fixed yearly kind of dosing, and then we hold treatment. Now, the, the question that might be then asked is, well, what's the end point with the extension? I would say with our first generation agents, most providers for something like macular degeneration have extended a stable patient out to three months, which is four injections a year, once a quarter. It's often an easier sell than monthly for sure. And then treat the patient on regular intervals. We know that wet macular degeneration patients 
um, often require lifelong treatment and that there is a risk of a breakthrough bleed, a macular hemorrhage, if we discontinue treatment altogether. And it's hard to quantify that risk, but we see it all the time in clinical practice. And when you see it, it's striking. The visual outcome at that point is much different than the road that you had been on. And so most doctors don't necessarily stop treatment for something like wet macular degeneration. Now for diabetic macular edema, most people are still doing treat and extend, but sometimes more of an as-needed approach. There isn't quite a precipitous uh, event that can happen per se in diabetic macular edema. Um, so I think most doctors are individualizing therapy through treat and extend or PRN treatment. And we do counsel our patients that usually we're talking about lifelong treatments. Excellent. Thank you so much. I think we have uh, time for one more question here. And that is, um, as a specialist, does the ANG2 pathway of farisimab provide additional advantage in your clinical opinion? That's a great and very current question. I think that we've seen in the post-hoc analysis from the registration trials for farisimab, these head-to-head -head comparisons in the early matched dosing phase that tell us that we see something different with furosemab as compared to two milligram aflibercept, which again is not the high dose form. Um, and we see differences in macular leakage. We see differences in ability to kind of address the pigment epithelial detachments and some other biomarkers are seen. So we have limited information at this point. We're using some proxies from the trials to say, okay, well, we have an anti-VEGF and then we have an anti-VEGF plus an anti-ANG2 in this monthly dosing for both. What differences are we seeing? And then it's a it's um, an inference that perhaps we can attribute that you know difference in macular leakage or difference in PED um, resolution to the ANG2 component. Um, and that's a proxy. Really, it's you know bench data that can tell us certainly more specifically about that. But since the, the question was about my clinical opinion, I think we do see something a little bit different. We do see it to be a bit stronger in a certain sense, but that's not true for every patient. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Ali. And uh, with that, I think we are just about at time. I will uh, go ahead and wrap up the webcast. Dr. Ali, thank you so much for all of your insightful commentary. And I would also like to once again, thank Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Inc. for their support of this educational activity. So in order to claim credit for today's program, please click the complete evaluation link in the activity. Once the evaluation is completed and submitted, uh, you will be able to select the type of credit that you require. This is going to conclude today's webcast. For more continuing education activities, please visit impacteducationsmanagecareeye.com. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day.